Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and we are discussing The Ring from 2002, directed by Gore Verbinski, written by Aaron Kruger, based on the 1991 novel by Koji Suzuki, starring Naomi Watts, Martin Henderson, Brian Cox, David Dorfman, and DeVay Chase. In this film, in an effort to uncover the truth and perhaps save her own life, a reporter investigates a videotape that kills the viewer seven days after watching it. If you're new to the show, we're going to discuss background info that is spoiler-free for the first 15 to 20 minutes of the show, and then once we play a little bit of transition music, we're going to transition into spoiler mode, walk through the plot in detail, reveal the ending, and review the film. So... Uh, you can listen for a while, but if you haven't seen The Ring, uh, you should duck out and go watch it on Paramount Plus or Netflix or rent it from the internet places. Uh, Patreon shoutouts. Thank you so much to our new patrons. This is like three or four weeks worth of patrons, so apologies, guys, for the delay. But thank you to Christopher C., Erica S., Catherine P., Lacey, Sydney M., Kristen K., Abby W., George, a.k.a. Bobby Denham, our old friend, Angeline G, Odalon P, Trevin, Duncan M, Tom, Meredith P, Sean T, AK Lambo, Anna K, Danielle B, Javier N, Alejandro, OG N, Darren H, and last but not least, my little sister. Oh, cool. I Thanks. think some people came crawling out of the woodwork to see us sweat over some spicy <laughs> wings. That was, yeah, that was an enticing value proposition there. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was. Good job, us. Yeah. We'll have to put ourselves in more uncomfortable situations on video. <laughs> Between that and the blank- blackening, I feel like we've been through some uncomfortable stuff the last <laughs> right. one. Right, yeah. yeah. Should have videotaped that episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, The Ring. This is a big, big deal. Big movie. This was a big movie for us because we were just, you know, transitioning from high school to college when this movie came out over the summer. Uh, And it was a cultural thing. You know, it it had an impact. It was a popular movie. It made a lot of money. How much did it make? It made $249.3 million. That's like $420 million in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. That's like low-key superhero money. Uh, it was an impactful movie, and it was you know spoofed and joked about on late-night comedy shows. Pe- people saw this movie. It was also PG-13, so that made it more accessible to bigger crowds. Yeah, man, what, what a legacy and like such a turning point in uh, Hollywood horror and like our lives. Like, yeah, I think it came out at like such an important time. Uh, of like the yeah the age we were at um, so yeah this is such a big thing I think for our generation uh, to see this film and it had been a long time since I'd seen it again but yeah I held had really good memories of watching it what what about you yeah man I don't remember the last time I watched it I remember the first time watching it I think I think the first time may have been like in my dorm room with some friends mm. um, what what did, what was your memory of this movie were you coming into this thinking like this is a a bona fide classic. I'm going to like it. I remember being scared. Like, I know yeah. our thoughts on movies can change on second viewings, but what was your memory of it after your first or second or third viewing? You've probably seen it a few times. Yeah, I mean, this film has always kind of been uh, the gold standard for me in terms of like one of the scariest movies or scariest experiences I've had watching a movie. 
And yeah, this was like, if you asked me like years ago, what's your favorite movie or like scariest movie you've seen? This is probably the one I would have mentioned is, is the ring. Like it had a huge influence on me. I feel like my love of horror or appreciation of it probably didn't start to like, I was around this age and I think it was like this film, uh, probably Blair Witch a few years earlier too. But uh, I really f- feel like I started to consider myself more of a horror fan after this film and like really kind of sought out horror films after watching this. So it's still held like a pretty high spot in my uh, in my in my perspective. What, what about you? Same, same. There are some movies I come into and I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, OK, this is a classic to me. I also remembered it being scary. So I was coming into this thinking like, OK, this this could be a high rating like this. This is five potential. This is a classic. We'll see at the tail end of the show whether that panned out for both of us. Yeah. Um, do you think? Like, oh, do you think when when we come in that way though, uh, it sets the movie up unfairly? Hmm. One could argue that maybe yes, it does. But I think we've also had some movies we've come into like that and been like, "Yep, yeah. confirmed. Uh, this this confirms what I thought about the movie uh, for my first time watching it." And yes, it's incredible. Yeah, I think like Blair Witch, Paranormal, we've, we're like pretty consistent on. Yeah, yeah, or things like The Shining, Rosemary's Baby. Right. We knew we liked them. We watched them again with a critical eye, and we were like, yeah, great. It's a dangerous game to play. I always get really nervous. <laughs> we go back to, like, favorites and, like, try to reevaluate them. I get excited because I'm just excited to take another look at it with this quote-unquote movie critic lens. <laughs> I don't know if you can call us that, but we've been analyzing movies in detail for five years it does it's done something to the way we watch movies so it has yeah interesting to check out a movie that you already think you love through that lens if you know. will <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about this movie's legacy you know the aughts and the teens were big supernatural years um this movie probably played a part in that it also began a wave of American remakes of Japanese horror films. We had The Grudge in 2004, Dark Water in 2005, Pulse in 2006. I think there were probably plenty more in there as well that I'm not mentioning. And and Japan, Japanese supernatural horror really influenced U.S. horror for a while because of these remakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think and it comes at a really interesting time too because uh, if you look at the year 2000, 2001, I almost feel like these are really like low points in American horror, like your big movies that are like Final Destination, um, what else, like Scream 3, Hollow Man, uh, Hannibal, The Cell, so it was just kind of like random like movies all over the place. So I, I think the introduction of this in 2002, uh, J-horror kind of coming in, uh, really kind of makes a turning point in uh, Hollywood horror. I agree. I agree. And some of those movies you mentioned, people might get angry that we are bes- besmirching them. <laughs> but and, and some of those are good movies, but it, it was just a different vibe. It was kind of like horror didn't really know what to do with itself. It got yeah. kind of big budget in a way, too, um, which for oh, yeah. better or worse. Uh, and this movie had a $48 million budget. Mm. I find that hard to believe. Uh, just That seems like more than you would have thought. Or less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. there were a lot of VFX mm-hmm. in this movie, and there were a lot of people who, you know, were Academy Award winners, very talented people that worked on this film. So, like, Hans Zimmer did the score. Dude, I was surprised to see his name. <laughs> I was surprised, too. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there were a few people like that where I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, how, yeah. How, how big was uh, Naomi Watts when this came out? Like, I, I feel like she was still slightly underrated. I, I know the director picked her because, uh, like, the, he was, like, looking at Gwyneth Paltrow and others who were, like, much bigger. So I assume, like, she must have been a little bit cheaper at that time than, like, a, like a bigger name actress. Yeah, I don't think she was huge at this yeah. time. And she started being in more movies after this. Sure. Funnily enough, she was also in the remake, the American remake of Funny Games, and oh. in 2022, the American remake of Goodnight Mommy. Ah, cool. So she's kind of like queen of the American remakes. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's got a good, uh, yeah, I think she acts in those roles pretty well. Yeah, yeah. She's a good actress. Uh, yep. She's also been in films like King Kong, Mulholland Drive, oh, yeah. Birdman, Vice, um, she was nominated mm-hmm. for an Academy Award for her performance in 21 Grams. Oh, yeah. There are various Oscar-nominated or Oscar-award-winning people involved in this movie. Hans Zimmer won an Oscar for uh, Best Original Score for Lion King. He won an Oscar for 2022's Dune. He's mm-hmm. done just iconic movies, Driving Miss Daisy, Gladiator, The Dark Knight. He's a big big name yeah. in, in film composing. Right. Um. Seven-time Oscar winner Rick Baker did the special effects makeup. Um, one wow. of those Oscars was for An American Werewolf in London, which we reviewed. Oh, that's awesome. He's got two for uh, werewolf movies. He's got one for 2010's The Wolfman. Oh, cool. That's his thing. <laughs> he's a werewolf guy. He's a were- Yeah, he's the werewolf guy. Yep. Um, so this is not only a, a, an adaptation of a novel, by the way, but a remake of a Japanese film from 1998 titled Ringu. That was a movie that you and I discussed pre-podcast. Yeah, and also a 1995 TV movie that was based on the book. Oh my gosh, I saw that somewhere in my Googling and mental, like mentally bookmarked that and never came back. Okay, so there was a TV movie. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy how many forms this one took before coming in the ring. Yeah, that's wild. And then there's The Ring 2 in 2005. Rings, a short film in 2005. And Rings from 2017 which is a full feature-length movie. And that has 8% on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> which a lot yeah. of those have low percentage ones. It's like, okay, well, it's like seven critics. This was from 115 critics. So Oof. yeah, 2017's Rings must be uh, a stinker. Yeah. I You know, it's an unfortunate uh, in general with like J-Horror in Hollywood. Like th- I think this, this movie, The Ring, was like the peak in terms of like uh, critical acclaim. And then it just like kind of went downward and bottomed out at like 0% with uh, one missed call. So uh, yeah, I, I think after the ring, it was just like a very like, uh, yeah, I think people kind of got over the, the shtick kind of kind of quick, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think the grit, the grudge kind of banked on some of the ring's success as well yeah. and like, you know, achieved some success. But I'd be interested to go back and see that one. I remember seeing that one shortly after The Ring and being like, eh, I'm not sure what the fuss is about. Uh, so it would be interesting to go back and, and check that one out again. I was down to go back and check out Sarah Michelle Geller. All right. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Dude, one thing I did not realize until researching this, so The Ring refers to, you know, that, that ominous ring of light on the videotape. Yeah. But it could also mean the phone call. I know, I know, right? That's pretty literal. Never thought of that. I've got another interpretation of it, but I'll, I'll save it for our discussion. Oh, boy. Um, speaking of this being like a big deal, we said it made a lot of money. It was a bit of a pop culture sensation. 
It won Best Horror Movie at the Saturn Awards. It won Best Horror Film at the MTV Movie Awards, which, say what you will about the MTV Movie Awards, but they were a decent barometer for pop culture among young people. Yeah. Um, it's That's that's really impressive feat. Cause, hey, this year also had uh, 28 Days Later come out. You also had, I think, Signs come out this year. Mm. Um, Cabin Fever came out this year. So to beat all those is the best horror film. This is quite a, quite a accomplishment. Boy, he was even nominated for all around best movie at the MTV no Movie way. Awards, <laughs> which is probably more telling of the MTV Movie <laughs> yeah, Awards exactly. than it is of the ring. <laughs> is that still a thing, MTV uh, Movie I Awards? I hope it's not anymore. But, yeah. but who knows? <laughs> was Carson uh, Daly hosting that? Carson, yeah. <laughs> he, even he's over MTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, Devay Chase, who plays Samara, won best villain at the MTV Movie Awards. This is the most I'll ever talk about the MTV Movie Awards <laughs> on this show, and now or I'm done. MTV in general. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. What else? Uh, our boy Gore Verbinski is an Academy Award-winning director. He got to start uh, making music videos, then he moved on to commercials. And, dude, he directed the iconic Budweiser Frogs commercial. Oh, wow. That's like huge. Like old Budweiser Frogs creaking. Yeah. Well, croaking that. Was that, like, late 90s or something? It feels like it. Yeah. Some of our young listeners may not connect with some of these things that were, like, a big deal culture-wise. But that commercial was as big as a commercial can get. Yeah. Almost viral if the internet had existed. Exactly. That time. Yeah. Uh, Gore directed some other movies, uh, many other movies, among them Mouse Hunt with Nathan Lane in the late 90s, The Mexican with Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt, the Ring, which was his most commercially successful film up until that point. But then he went on and did the first three Pirates of the Caribbean films. He did The Weatherman with Nick Cage. Rangu, which won the... Uh, Rangu. <laughs> Rango. <laughs> dangerously similar to Ringu. You think he signed up for that thinking those... <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh yeah, this is... This yeah. Must be another I've Ring I've done thing. this one before. <laughs> uh, that is an... An animated feature, and it won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. He also did A Cure for Wellness uh, somewhat recently, another horror film. Um, and the writer, Aaron Kruger, won the... He was Oscar-nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Top Gun Maverick last mm-hmm. year. Yeah. And he's he come got along the Bram... With... Oh, go oh. ahead. Oh, he, he, I feel like he's come a long way since... He's come a uh, long way, baby. Yeah, he uh, he wrote what what I consider to be the worst uh, Scream film. Scream he wrote 3. the screenplay for Scream 3, yeah. And he's also written a few Transformers films, which also I think are hot, hot garbage, but, you know. Um, I'm not sure that he should have won the best adapted screenplay for Top Gun Maverick. Agreed, <laughs> man. There's no way in hell that movie should have been nominated for... What any of the awards yeah. except for like best effects? That, it's know. such a cheesy move. Sorry, everybody. I loved the movie. It's a ton of fun. It does not deserve critical acclaim for anything but like stunts. Yeah, effects. <laughs> I know. I I have no idea what the fuck was going on last year that people were all up. Or no, like was that last year or two years ago? This is twenty twenty two, right? I think it was last year. Yeah, that was insane. The hype that film got, the critical acclaim. I was so disappointed after I saw it. Like, wait, I don't understand what the fuss was about. I deserved. The, I think it deserved the hype, but did not deserve the critical acclaim. Mm, okay, it was like embarrassing sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, we just threw some shade at Aaron Kruger. But... <laughs> yeah, I think he deserves it. 
He well, he was uh, he won the Bram Stoker Award for best screenplay for this movie. So. Okay. So we can cool. throw him shade. It, it bounces right off of him. He won. He won an award. Yeah. He also wrote The Ring too. Um, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes. You know, as much as we're saying, oh, this was a classic. Uh, people loved it. It's got a seventy-one percent from critics, and a forty-eight percent from users. That was wild. That I, was surprising. Yeah, I totally thought like uh, viewers would have been over the moon on this one, and critics would have been a little bit harsher. Yeah. How much of that is, uh, do you think, like, more recent people watching it? Like, I, I, I got to think when it came out, audiences loved it. And maybe over the years, the effects and the storytelling and, like, the way horror has evolved, uh, maybe more recent viewership has led to more negative scores. But do you, do you feel like that, that, that theory holds any weight? That's exactly what I was thinking, that these are young people who are coming in like, oh, The Ring's supposed to be a classic and super scary. I'm going to check it out. And they're underwhelmed, and mm. and that's why it's got that forty-eight. This is like us watching Jaws. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, did you know about like a viral marketing for this? I didn't really hear about it at the time, but they played the like the ring videotape on late night TV over the summer without oh. any context, and the videotape was left on the windshield of people's cars. I didn't know about that. That would have freaked me out. Like you find this tape oh, and you man. go and put it in. Yeah, you could have really messed some people up. Yeah, man, it would have been cool if they actually like call those people after they watched that tape and said like seven days. Oh wow, uh, oh, man, that, was, that technology is probably beyond them at that point. I'm sure they could have found a way. Yeah, yeah, that would have been that would have been awesome. Whew, <laughs> that would have terrified me. Yeah. Hey, that original video that we see that's like a main part of this film. Um, I, I'm assuming that's directed by the same guy who directed the movie, right? That's not like something that was taken from one of the older iterations of this film. That's a really good question. I, I don't know if he directed it. I saw that it was done by uh, Method Studios, and that's a visual effects studio founded in 1999 hmm. who would go on to do visual effects for some of the biggest movies ever made, but they were just getting started around this time. Okay. But I don't know if like Gore directed that and they just did the effects or how much input they had. I gotta believe he would have had a, a decent amount of say I would in think that. So, he yeah. probably directed it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was behind the creative vision behind it. Some yeah, but that's, a, you know, like an entity unto itself. Right. Yeah, that film. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> For sure. That's about all I have as far as background information that I wanted to mention, but is there anything I missed that you'd like to discuss? Uh, a few things. One, uh, the director... So first off, the movie, uh, which we refer to as Ringu, was actually called The Ring in, when it was released in Japan, directed by Hideo Nakata. Uh, so I was really curious like, why, when that movie was distributed internationally, they then changed the title internationally to Ringu when in Japan the original film was called The Ring. So that was kind of random. And then he also came back and directed the sequel in the U.S. to Ring 2. But um, yeah, did, did did you realize that, that this film was originally called The Ring in Japan? I or thought Ringu I was? saw a mention of that and was confused. That's surprising. Yeah. They were like, oh, no, you got to change it because we're going <laughs> to... We're going to do our own version of this. So yeah. <laughs> you got to make it sound more foreign. Uh, but yeah, speaking of Ringu, uh, that, you know, you talk about the Rotten Tomato score of this one in the low 70s. That one had a 97%, and that came out a few years earlier. Um, the other thing, uh, J-Horror in general, which I think, you know, we haven't covered too much on this podcast, have we? No, we really haven't. I think Pulse might be the only one. 
Pulse, right? Yeah. With the not the American remake. The we original. reviewed the Japanese film, which I think was two thousand one. I want to say. Sure. Uh, really interesting to kind of dive into the history of J horror. Um, like so, I one, one thing I find really interesting is that a lot of it came out from World War Two, like uh, as a direct, well, you know, influenced by the events of World War Two and the nuclear bombs. Uh, so it's interesting that this movie kind of drops in two thousand two after nine eleven. You know, and you know, a big uh, attack here in the U.S. and kind of like uh, revives Hollywood a bit in, in on the horror side. And I, I'd say like 2002 onwards, horror got a lot better. So it's just interesting to see these horror genres kind of pick up after these like insane events. Yeah, for sure. Uh, many people have said, yeah, that these these events drive horror for the next decade, whether directly or indirectly or subconsciously. Yeah, right. It's crazy how you see it. Uh, yeah, pan out in horror. Um, Very interesting. We need to cover more of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, just in, in J horror, I think um, one of the tropes or like things that are really influential when you are very similar when you watch a bunch of these films are things we see in this film, like a, a girl with like long hair covering her face, uh, the idea of uh, the destruction of a nuclear family, which I think you see in a few forms in this, and then psychological horror is often tied with J horror. Which do you consider this movie to be psychological horror? No, I don't. Do you? I don't know. And if so, I'd like to hear your argument yeah, at the end. At the end. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, let's talk about it at the end. Because uh, I think, uh, you know, I remember this being a very scary movie with a lot of, like, jump out scares. But rewatching it, um, I don't think there are that many. And a lot of this movie is just a lot of dread. So I do wonder if that falls more into that. Curve. But I, I guess J-horror generally tends to be a more psychological horror. But that's I it. also think this is a, a version of tech horror. Oh, yeah. Techno horror. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's interesting too because the videotape was really kind of dying around this time, and it feels like only old technologies can be scary, right? Right. But new technologies was was they were scary in Videodrome that dealt with videotapes and broadcast signals. So yep, that was uh, like in yeah. the eighties, right? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's fair to call this tech horror, and Pulse was tech horror as well. So I wonder yeah. if there's a bit of a uh, fear of technology permeating some of the late 90s, early 2000s J-horror. Sure, yeah. Even maybe like a fatigue of it in some ways, like that yeah. TVs are so like everywhere, people are like t- uh, tied to the screen and stuff. I, I think they try to hit on that in this film. They do try to hit on that. Whether or not they do that successfully is up for debate, but it. Right. I did pick that up this time, which I hadn't in the past. Sure, sure. Uh, anything else? That's all I got. You got a know-how connection? I do. As always, our friend Alex... Connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you are in the area, swing by. Great patio, great drinks, great food. Alex says The Ring is a supernatural horror remake directed by Gore Verbinski, starring Naomi Watts, Martin Henderson, and Brian Cox. The plot plot centers on a journalist who must figure out a way to escape death after watching a cursed videotape. It was produced in part by Walter F. Parks, a longtime producer, screenwriter, and media executive. He is the producer of more than 50 films, including the Men in Black series and Minority Report, and co-founded the VR and technology company Dreamscape Immersive. Among his filmography is the 1998 action comedy Small Soldiers, a film about two factions of toys which turn sentient after being programmed with a military microprocessor. Small Soldiers takes place and was first partially filmed in Ohio. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Feels like he had to really dig for that one. Yeah, yeah. Good find, though. I've, I've heard good things about that movie. It's supposed to be pretty funny. Yeah, I've never seen that one. That was just like 
I was getting too old for oh to keep checking out <laughs> animated movies. I think sure, yeah. Or at least yeah. I thought I was. Yeah, yeah. I know now. Now, like, uh, I feel like they cater to all ages. Yeah, adults yeah. and kids. I feel like they always have, but I I didn't really realize. You know, yeah. when you're in eighth grade, you're too cool, <laughs> too cool for school. Exactly, exactly. For a while. <laughs> hey, all right, man. Oh, one one last thing uh, that we haven't uh, talked about yet on on the podcast. I wanted to congratulate you on winning the uh, draft. I, I I just uh, I was stalking our uh, our our uh, Instagram uh, feed the other day, and I, I noticed that that you won that by quite a landslide, huh? I thought we discussed that on the show. I don't think so, because I feel but like... But yeah, let's it, discuss it. I fucking kicked your ass. <laughs> you did, but uh, there is one uh, small thing. Uh, I feel like people may have voted multiple times, and uh, maybe there's an issue here of uh, voter fraud. Uh, I, I feel like word on the street is you could have voted multiple times on this, and so I, I don't know how much weight to give you on this one. Uh, you went ahead and voted multiple times. I saw just to plant this seed. <laughs> I did. I was just testing it though to make sure it, it, it was actually. <laughs> yes, a flaw you in the can system. vote multiple times. I generally know everyone's different handles. Uh, hmm. I mean, not really, but I can kind of connect some of the dots. Yeah, I don't think many people did. Okay, and even if they did, yeah, you, you, <laughs> it wasn't even close. <laughs> it's just not even close. I don't know, man. Uh, Still I, waiting for that hoodie, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Ah, shoot. You know, I think they're sold out of it, but... <laughs> All right, we've got rigged voting, sold out hoodies. This, Yeah, this is a problematic <laughs> here. But if anyone's interested, I'm, I'm going to storm Brian's house in like two weeks. So. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll send the date out. You took it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Good job, though, man. Congratulations. Holding the flag that says Ashvin. <laughs> yeah, Ashvin one. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, let's do this. Let's spoil the plot. Let's walk through everything. We're going to spoil the movie, guys, so if you haven't seen it, go go watch it. Uh, you know what, man? Can you hold on a second? I, I think I hear my phone ringing, and then we'll jump back into this. Okay, sounds good. Okay, be right back. All right. Hey, man, I'm back. Hey, everything okay? Yeah, it was super creepy. It was just a voice that said seven days, and uh, I was screaming in terror, and then the guy <laughs> on the other end heard me, and he, he just wanted to clarify that my library books are seven days overdue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did away really... with the late fees during COVID, but they've really upped their intimidation. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> they know what they're doing when they call people and say that. <laughs> Oh man, you know, uh, I anytime I, that was one thing that really surprised me about this film is like someone has seven days left to live and they're hanging out at the library. Uh, I feel like that's probably the last place I would be if you had seven days left to live. Well, I mean, it makes sense. She's she's doing everything she can to put a stop to this. She's a reporter. That's what she does. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's what you. It's think. not like everyone goes to the library. Just her. <laughs> just her. Nerd. <laughs> All right, so the film opens with two high school girls, Becca and Katie, hanging out and watching TV. One of them begins discussing a conspiracy theory that all the waves in the air from TV and phones are killing our brains. Uh, Then the other shares a rumor about a videotape that seems like someone's nightmare on film, but when you watch it, you get a phone call that says seven days, and then seven days later, you die. The other girl, Katie 
panics and says she watched the video seven days ago. She pretends she's choking. She collapses in Becca's arms, but she soon reveals that it's only a joke and she's not dying. However, when the phone rings, the look of terror in Katie's eyes reveals that she's not joking and she really did watch the tape with her boyfriend last weekend. Was that kind of lame that she like pulled this prank and is like, ha, ha, ha. But actually, fuck but me. Actually, <laughs> but actually, I'm scared every time the phone rings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just, it's odd. I thought that was like kind of a very uneven tone of like going back and forth with the jokiness and then, oh no, I'm actually scared. This was a very unnatural opening dialogue. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But they, they try to sneak in some of that TV theme, you know, sub subtext of like, oh, there's, yeah. you know, stuff in the air from the TV. They, they kind of just demonize television entertainment a little bit yeah right off the bat at the beginning that's like the opening line basically mm-hmm and then just they they throw little crumbs out throughout the movie about stuff right. like that um <clears throat> so yeah the phone rings katie's terrified uh but luckily it's only her mom however she soon witnesses the tv turning on by itself she sees something move in its reflection she's getting creeped out Uh, As she goes to enter her bedroom upstairs, she notices a pool of water outside the bedroom door, and when she opens the door, an unseen force from her TV kills her. What did you think of this opening? Yeah, it was was interesting. I I think we talked about how the dialogue is kind of uneven. Um, You don't know kind of like the mental space these characters are in. Uh, It's not like very fluid here. Um, but then, yeah, obviously the water is pretty fluid. Um, and then, uh, some like scream vibes, uh, with like the phone ringing, two girls home alone, picking it up. But then like, again, that play, so there are a lot of like pranks along the way. It's kind of like starts and stops. Um, and then, yeah, it just wasn't as scary as I remember it being more kind of like intriguing, uh, and a decent enough hook, but like not very scary, uh, maybe kind of creepy at, at the most, uh, but not much of a payoff either. So, uh, yeah. What did you think? Not much of a payoff is my resounding thought as well. I actually thought the suspense building was pretty good. The TV? Um, yeah, with the TV and stuff, seeing stuff in the background. We get one of those shots where she opens the refrigerator door and the camera is positioned in such a way that you're sure that when she closes it, you're going to see something, but yeah. you don't. Faking you out. Uh, yeah. But it ends in a fizzle to me. It's just kind of lame the way they execute this. You kind of got the snap zoom out from the TV and then cut to her with a snap zoom in on her face with her mouth agape and it's just like it's just cheesy like "Ah!" yeah exactly exactly and it just seems very trite (laughs) yeah is that the way you remember it being or do you remember it like being a more effective opening I don't remember the opening being like what really freaked me out um so I didn't have high hopes for the opening. So yeah, I, I, it was a little um, sobering, just being like, oh, okay, that okay. was just fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt. Cool. After the credits, we meet Rachel, a workaholic single mom, uh, played by Naomi Watts, who is late picking her kid Aiden up from school. Aiden's teacher expresses concern that he's drawing pictures of his dead cousin Katie, so we kind of pick up just by the clues given to us that the young woman who died in the opening sequence was Aiden's cousin, Rachel's mm-hmm. niece. Uh, Rachel's mom's kind of nonplussed, like, okay, yeah, that's the way he's dealing with his grief. 
But then the teacher reveals Aiden drew these pictures of dead Katie days before she died. Bum, bum, bum. So Aiden also admits to his mom that Katie had told him that she didn't have much time left. It's a bit of a cliche, like the kid who is somehow in touch with the other side, but it's a good setup for the mystery and the journey that the film is about to take us on, in my opinion. Again, not blowing minds, but peaking interest at this point of the movie. What did you think? Yeah, you know, I I I, I was uh, thrown off by like, how does this kid know? But I think, uh, and and I went, I thought the same thing you did, like, oh, he can like kind of perceive things. But then he, I thought he explains it pretty well, like, oh, uh, his his cousin told him that she was gonna die. So I I I, ca- I kind of figured that solved the answer of like why he was drawing those pictures. Uh, but you still got the idea that he had some like supernatural capabilities <clears throat> here. By the end of the movie, it's still kind of unclear to me if he's picking up on some things or if he's just perceptive yeah or yeah yeah i don't know if he's got some sort of supernatural gifts or sensitivity or if he's just uh taking taking what comes to him taking notes being observant yeah Uh, yeah uh what do you think of uh the 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 dynamic here because i i think that's a lot of what these scenes set up is uh of rachel and Aiden and like their relationship, like this kid obviously has like uh, a unique personality. Um, he's very like yeah, well behaved. And like uh, Rachel, like the first scene we see her, she's like coming into a school way late. She's like yelling at her boss on a cell phone. Uh, she kind of like doesn't have her stuff together. We see like uh, the kid uh, like making himself breakfast and walking himself to school. So I, I feel like there's a lot of setup here that like she's maybe a very like overworked and overlooking mother, and he's kind of like this very uh, interesting child. What, what did you think of all this? Yeah, they they give you quite a bit of context clues to let you know she's not necessarily a bad mom, but she is a busy mom. She's not super attentive, and he's just the type of kid that is very precocious and kind of ahead of his years and takes care of himself he's like ironed her dress for katie's funeral right um so i think it's a little tie. bit of like this ki- yeah this kid's like very advanced and he kind of needs to be because she's he needs to pick up the slack for her as a mom right yep do you think that was like a did you buy into that or did it feel like over the top felt a little bit over the top he's like kind of a um what's the word i'm looking for what are those uh Big stupid faces they draw out a fan caricature of a, a caricature, yeah, of like oh, cool. a, a <laughs> smart kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and like she's like like the extreme example of like an overworked uh, person or parent. Yeah, of. I found her more believable than than him. But mm. yeah, yeah. And I, I love how he calls her uh, Rachel. That's like he calls her Rachel <laughs> instead of mom. I think that kind of puts it over the edge. It's like uh, okay, okay. Well, we get it. We, we get what kind of kid it is. <laughs> yeah, calm the fuck down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody, calm down. <laughs> yeah, good for you, kid. Exactly. Uh, at Katie's funeral, her mother, Rachel's sister, asks Rachel if she can use her skills as an investigative journalist to get to the bottom of what happened to Katie because the circumstances of her death don't make any sense she just died out of nowhere and we get a smash cut flashback of katie's mother discovering her dead body with a warped and ghoulish expression on her face what did you think of that that cutaway to i think i think that was good man i think that's like the first proper jump scare of of the film Uh, i remember that got me when i was younger and i think it still works what did you think i agree i think that's the first truly creepy moment of the film right and if you were 14, 13 or 14, there's a lot in this movie to scare you. Mm. Kids killing but, themselves. 
Yeah. But yeah. um, we'll talk about the scares as we get going. Rachel does some snooping at the funeral and learns from Katie's friends that Katie and her boyfriend watched a videotape with some friends a week ago. And they theorize that, you know, that's what killed them for real. Rachel soon learns that the boyfriend and the two other kids who watched the video all died exactly at 10 p.m., which is the same time that Katie died. And uh, the dude from the OC pops up here, I think. Adam Brody is at the funeral. He plays one of the friends. I never realized he was in this film. <laughs> that was yeah, a surprise. Me, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like, I feel like I've seen this movie a lot, but it was probably only like two or three times and pretty close to the year of its release. I, oh, yeah. I don't think I've seen this in 15, at least 15 years. Yeah, I got to say same. It's been a long time. Rachel, while snooping around the house, also finds a receipt for a Photoshop and uses it to pick up Katie's photos of that weekend getaway. This was technology back in the day, kids. (laughs) You had to go get your photos developed. And she notices that in many of the photos of Katie and her friends, all of their faces are strangely distorted. She decides to do more digging, and she rents the same cabin that they rented on their weekend getaway, and it is there that she discovers the unmarked videotape and watches it. And wow, for for any of the scares that didn't hold up in this movie, I remember this tape as being really creepy, and it did not disappoint, in my opinion. I agree. What did you think? I agree, man. I I think that tape is like one of the scariest parts of this film. Uh, Every time it comes on, which I'm I'm curious if you think it comes on uh, too many times. But yeah, between like the visuals you you see and then the sound design of it too, just uh, really messed up stuff that I think uh, really works and is effective. I agree. It's just an assortment of creepy visuals like maggots that seem to turn into writhing bodies, which I never Mm -hmm. really noticed before. Right. fingertip getting punctured by a nail, dead horses on a beach, a woman seemingly committing suicide by jumping off of a cliff, dying by suicide, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, of course, a well and a ring of light, among various other images. And after the video ends, the phone rings and a voice whispers ominously to Rachel across the phone line, seven days. That is, you know, the iconic moment of the movie. And yeah, as Ashvin, and Ashvin just said, I, I think it's still very scary. It's a, a creepy assortment of images. It really is, yeah. Uh, and, and this is like the video that you're saying they handed out, right, as part of like the marketing? Yeah. Which, yeah God, I, that would fuck me up if you just put that on the hood of my car when I was like 18. Yeah, yeah, it's so bizarre. And uh, yeah, it, it, it still works. I, I love it. It's, it's, it's really yeah. well done. I do too. I feel like this being divorced from any sort of logic or plot can sometimes let you be the scariest you can be. Exactly. Yeah. Just like this randomness. Yeah. uh, And like disturbing visuals. Yeah. It works. I think Naomi Watts, we've seen enough at this point. She's very good at acting afraid and tormented. I think her performance, especially in frightening scenes, is, is pretty good in this movie. I guess she really hasn't been that scared yet. Yeah. I think maybe this is about the first moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like so far she's just been curious. Yeah. Yeah. She plays a good curious, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I agree. I, I feel like her acting uh, here is, yeah, she's pretty creeped out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not, it's a strong performance. It's not amazing, but it's a strong performance. Yep. I agree. She returns home to her Seattle apartment where she has her friend Noah, who appears to be a love interest or ex-boyfriend of some kind, take a look at the tape as he is a photographer, editor, video, and photo extraordinaire. 
She has him watch it despite having some concerns about his well-being if he watches it, but he's not afraid. And he tells her if she makes him a copy, he can tell her who made it and where it came from. Uh, So he watches it. He doesn't think it's that scary. Um, But of course, once he looks into the video, he discovers that there's no trace of what was used to film the video or how it was made. He points out a scene in the video with a mirror where you should theoretically see the reflection of the camera in the mirror, but you can't. So he's he's kind of miffed. It's, it's not making sense to him, even though he's the one kind of pushing cold, hard logic and being like, this is all BS. By the yeah. way, the phone rang after he watched it, but she let it go to voicemail and deleted the voicemail. Uh, yeah, right. Was it called voicemail back then or just like an answering machine? What did we call it? We didn't call it voicemail. Just, uh, yeah, a message. Wait, check your messages when you get home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for some reason, it's just way less scary as a message. Like, the yeah. the ghouls so, held for like, hello, I'm not in right now. Yeah. You can... <laughs> Seven days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> just waiting patiently, like, yeah, for that taking deep. a quick bite of food over the sink. <laughs> yeah. Seven days. Uh, hey, uh, one thing I, I'm wondering if you noticed, like, uh, th- this hit me like, uh, yeah, definitely when she goes to the cabin and I feel like throughout the film, the, the green filter, like green it is so green. Why is this film so fucking green, man? What's, what's the deal? I think it gives it an eeriness and etherealness. It's a very Pacific Northwest wet humid mossy film yeah and i think they try to get that across in the <laughs> color but uh, man they really went heavy on that with the way color too palette. heavy I, yeah. I think to a detriment yeah i think so man was... i would have never noticed as a kid like why is this movie green but you know yeah it, if you over the years it's become brought up like hey the ring's a green movie i i went upstairs to get something and came back down and the movie was paused and it was just like the basement was green. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, oh my gosh, exactly. like the, the TV is green right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's like a green light on the whole time. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I, th- I think they did that to give it like a creepy feel, but they went way too hard with it. Uh, and everything's just like oversaturated and green. Yeah, it's, it's a bit much. Yeah. Especially like in that opening scene. It's just like when you oh, go right house. into the movie, you're not used to it. And you're just like, wait, why is it? Yeah. look this way and then you kind of forget about it sometimes but others right. it's just like oh yeah we're still green we're still yeah exactly green it, every now and then you get these pops of red which uh you know i know the tree that she sees when she goes to that cabin is is red but yeah so much uh usage of green i, I started to get old really quick it did yeah um so rachel proceeds to do some research she heads to that library as we mentioned and she finds a book about lighthouses and a photo of a lighthouse in the book that matches the lighthouse from the video. Further research on the lighthouse leads her to discover a photo of the woman who appears in the video, the woman who's looking in the mirror and who jumps off the cliff. She learns that the woman is Anna Morgan, and her and her husband Richard Morgan raised horses until they all started mysteriously dying, the horses that is, and Anna died by suicide after suffering from hallucinations. The horses, too, were killing themselves, right? Yeah, yeah, the horses, yeah, they were killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that struck me here, buddy, about 45 minutes into the movie right now, we really have not spent much time with Aiden, the child. Oh, yeah, right. Her her kid. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe that's not a surprise because we know she's a workaholic and she fears her life is at risk. <laughs> but uh, yeah, boy, if that relationship's supposed to matter, we really aren't getting anything about it. I, th- I think uh, that's purposeful, and I think there's a parallel uh, with that relationship between uh, some of the things going on in the plot. Agreed, agreed. We'll expand on that soon. As the days are ticking by for Rachel, she starts having some supernatural experiences. She pulls long, black, wet hair from her mouth. She sees a young girl with long black hair in Aiden's room who grabs her wrist. Uh, She wakes up from that thinking, oh, it was just a dream. But then, you know, the old cliche where she looks at her wrist and the the bruises are there. She then walks in on Aiden, who to her horror has watched the videotape. Did you notice this time she's starting to come out of the well that is the last image of the tape? Yeah, yeah. So it's like she's progressing towards Rachel? Exactly, yeah. I like that. That That's really cool. I like that too. It's cool. But let's book bookmark or stick a pin in that. I want to come back to that. Okay. Uh, in this moment where Rachel is weeping over the fact that Aiden has now seen the film, Noah calls Rachel, Rachel to tell her he believes her about the tape. Because in an earlier scene, we saw his face in a convenience store security camera, and he noticed his face is distorted now in video. So during this phone call where he's like, hey, I believe you, Rachel tells Noah he watched the tape. And he's like, who? Who watched the tape? And she goes, our son. <laughs> reveal. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you think this was a cool reveal? Or uh, what did you think? Uh, I think so. I, I think it has implications on the plot. And yeah, it's not obvious. There's like a scene where he runs into Noah and like the camera kind of pauses on them too, like outside in the rain. And, uh, yeah, you would think, okay, yeah, maybe there's some kind of connection here. So it's kind of cool uh, of them to kind of, like, nail it here that, like, yeah, that him and Rachel were a thing, an item at one point, and that's their son. So it added some clarity to the ambiguity that was there. What, what did you think? Yeah, they there was a scene earlier where they were both walking in the rain. Aiden was exiting the apartment. Noah was entering, but they were still on the street. They both gave each other a glance, like, I know who you are, but you might not know who I am. Right. And, and vice versa. Uh, yeah, I actually, at this point in the movie, I thought it was a cool reveal. I was like, oh, nice. They like withheld that information and it really aired, added layers of complexity to, a, you know, what's otherwise kind of a simple story, but yep. withholding it from us made it seem more rich. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like, Later on fun. in the movie, I, I have more like reflecting back on that reveal. I'm kind of like, eh, but, but at the time in the place in the movie where it happened, I was like, cool, cool, new, new. New plot twist. I agree. I agree. Though, yeah, I, w- I wonder if she hadn't said our son, if she just said Aiden, if, uh, yeah, maybe later just do natural dialogue, we might have uh, picked it up and that would have been better. But it's it's it was, it, was a, it was good to reveal that, I guess, to show the card at this point. Yeah, I think it was good timing to show the card. Yeah. Um, so, but some of the impact of it, it's kind of undercut by some awkward dialogue immediately afterwards between Aiden and Noah Aiden says he's seen him taking his picture at school recess. <laughs> Frowned upon, by the way. <laughs> Noah asks Aiden if he wishes he was around more. Aiden says, no, do you? And Noah's like, I don't think I'd make a very good father, but I don't want anyone else to be your father either. Yeah. And it's just so devoid of emotion and a weird arrangement. Like everyone just seems happy to agree that Noah isn't going to be involved at all with <laughs> Aiden's life, but is still on friendly terms with his mom like yeah and nobody knows that this is his kid it seems like it's just like 
he was like, you know, I don't think I'd be a good dad. She's like, all right, cool. I, I guess I'll do it myself. <laughs> I won't really be around much, though. It's just like, yeah. this is odd. You think I so? get what they were going for. It just, yeah, I don't know. So, it's, it's, something about these relationships just didn't ring true to life to me. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a very messy relationship. Uh, there's a scene a few uh, scenes back where she's like in Noah's apartment. They're like looking at the video together, and another uh, girl walks in that uh, Noah's like romantically linked with, and it kind of sets uh, Rachel off. And like at that point, like we don't know yet that like something is. Uh, been happening there so uh once you realize that this is uh his son and that no that uh he, noah and rachel were dating at one point um i think it just paints the picture like they ha- they're on and off again potentially it's kind of like a messy relationship and it really paints a picture that like yeah she's like the strong independent woman who like would rather just kind of raise uh this kid who's like super bright on her own and even he's like pretending to be like yeah i don't care if you want to be in the picture or not it's up to you and that like you're actually like the child for you know kind of not knowing what you want and like trying to uh not let me have another dad but you you, you don't want to be the dad kind of thing so i thought it was a very like human moment and, like i kind of point out the flaws in all these characters but uh you didn't get any of that yeah to me it struck me as kind of the opposite a little bit inhuman like these just like robots <laughs> like, oh really I, yeah i don't really know i mean I thought it was like messed up and dirty though. Nothing about, yeah, messed up, dirty robots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it because like the, this dialogue is like so kind of like sterile and like, uh, this, this the, the dialogue here is so sterile. Naomi Watts is a very human, she puts on a very human performance in this movie, but these two mm-hmm. are both cold. Like, the yeah. kid is cold, like, purposefully. He's like just a horror movie kid cliche that I wish we <laughs> would just fucking stop already. Yeah. And, Noah is just like a weird before he's just like super casual. He's like late nineties slacker type vibe. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just weird to me. I, I don't know. It doesn't dynamic. feel natural. It's a weird dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. get the, the the dynamic you're describing could have worked, but the way it ends up on film with these performances and this mm-hmm. direction is just odd. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I is your biggest beef with like believing Noah is the father of this kid? And like, My biggest is belief is that, that their behavior is at all believable. That the kid okay. would be like, like, no, I figured you're my dad, but you know, I don't really want you around. You want to be around? And then he would be like, you know, I just don't feel like I'd be very good at it, so I'm, I'm yeah. not going. Like, yeah, it's just uh, weird. Either be like completely out of the picture, or I don't know, or yeah. be a jerk or something. Like, is it possible know. Noah inherited his uh, unbelievableness from this dad? And that's like how you know they're related. It's because they both are just so unbelievable. They're both really bad at dialogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That could be the trait that he inherited from this dad. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I think that's a fair criticism. But it, it lends a complexity, I think, to the plot that uh, I, I think tries to have an impact later on. Yeah, okay. We could keep talking about it, but I don't want to beat a dead horse. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel decides she's going to head to the island where the Morgan family raised their horses to find out more about the tape. And on the way there, she discovers a brief mention in an old article that the Morgans had a daughter. So that piques her interest. She also tries to pet a horse that's on the ferry. (laughs) (laughs) This is so bizarre. (laughs) It's so dumb to even include it. Oh, God. There is a horse, there's a giant ferry boat that takes vehicles over to an island. And there is a, you know, vehicle towing a trailer that is 
outfitted for a horse. There's a horse in the trailer. She reaches in and tries to pet it, just, you know, are you allowed to do that? Down where the cars are. I don't think you're even allowed to go down where the cars are on most Uh, ferries, but sure. And yeah, that's kind of frowned upon to reach in and like pet a horse you don't know. Yeah. The horse freaks out (laughs) and breaks out of the trailer and jumps off the boat where it dies after being chopped up in the in the boat's engine and you know all this blood is spit out into the water behind the boat. (laughs) <laughs> I have this a question is... here. Ask Ashvin if that scene was necessary, but I, I think I know my answer. Dude, I mean, it was, it was comical. I, I don't know how we, like, uh, digested this scene way back when we watched this, but, like, watching this now, it's like, dude, she, like, yeah, the, so unprovoked for her to be, like, uh, petting the horse, the horse freaking out, like, and her, like, trying to calm the horse down. And then the editing, I thought, was, like, really choppy. Like, you're getting, like, horse vision while it's, like, running around and, like, uh, ch- turning corners and stuff. Uh, yeah, it just kind of seemed like a, a very comical sequence. What did you think? It, it did seem comical. I think it, what added to the comedy is that there's also, like, a bunch of random extras who are, like, boat workers and stuff. You're like, oh, well, somebody, stop the thing. Well. <laughs> it's just, like, you could... Swap out the score and add the like, and you're like, oh, this is a, a comedy. A comedy, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just this big run around on the boat, basically. Yeah, that was a disappointing scene. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think completely unnecessary. Kind of broke the vibe of it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Rachel uh, gets to the island. She finds Richard Morgan on the Morgan Ranch where she also recognizes many of the visuals and the settings from the videotape, like the house and the mirror. Mr. Morgan is not only standoffish, but downright hostile and vaguely threatening. He accuses reporters of taking one's personal tragedy and spreading it around like sickness, or taking one person's tragedy, rather, and spreading it like sickness. So she has no luck with Mr. Morgan, but she finds a doctor on the island who used to treat the Morgan's daughter and... She tells the doctor, like, look, I'll be honest, I, I think I'm seeing things, and I think it's because of their little girl. And the doctor kind of casually says, I haven't heard that, in a, I haven't heard anyone say that in a long time, implying, you know, Rachel's not the first one experiencing this. Mm-hmm. She tells Rachel she assumed the girl was at an institution on the mainland, and Rachel's kind of like, what do you mean, you think? Like, haven't you kept up? And she's like, frankly, everything on the island has been better since Samra Samara has been gone. She's kind of like if somebody catches a cold on an island, it's everybody's cold. It, it basically, like a, a good riddance, and I don't want to know anything more about what happened to that girl. Right. Rachel returns to the Morgan house, sneaking into the front door. She discovers a tape of Samara being interviewed at a mental hospital where she reveals that she sees visions and they just become pictures. This presumably explains how the tape was made. It's just her visions got made onto a tape. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, you know, it's a supernatural movie, whatever. But Mr. Morgan sneaks up on Rachel while she's watching this. He strikes her and then proceeds to kill himself in the bathtub by electrocuting himself. He's saying stuff like he's tired of Samara whispering to him and showing him things. And it's just clear that this girl has, like, some sort of evil influence on everyone she encounters. Noah shows up to the ranch shortly after this, and the two of them investigate the barn next to the house, where they find a ladder leading to a loft with a bed, a rocking horse, and a television. It's kind of clear that this is where Samara was forced to stay, and once the ladder was removed, she'd have no way to get down. 
They notice a picture of a tree that Samara made on the wall of her loft, and Rachel recognizes the tree from the cabins where Katie and her friends stayed for the weekend and where Rachel went and found the tape. In this scene, I I think I couldn't quite catch it, but Rachel was like, I can't believe she was here alone. And Noah's like, she wasn't alone. And I think he gestures to the TV, like she had the TV to keep her company. And so that's another moment where they point to that theme, uh, you know, this TVs are, are maybe doing bad things. There was also a moment where Rachel stepped out of her apartment and looked around uh, her apartment complex and at her windows, the windows of her neighbors, and just saw a bunch of people mindlessly watching their TVs. Yeah, I feel like they generally try to make a comment on television, people's addiction to it. Uh, even that we, we said earlier about what... Um, Samara's dad said to uh, uh, Rachel about like you want to take someone's tragedy and make everyone see it. It's kind of like what uh, you could see that as like a a comment about television. Uh, yeah, and a comment about the tape too. Like yeah, exactly. spreading one person's tragedy and, and spreading it like sickness. And exactly, exactly. That's what Samara is doing. You could argue that's what Rachel does as a journalist. Rachel does. You could say that's what the news does. Certain certain news stories for sure. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, so television. I, I think it's an interesting theme. Uh, yeah, so you think there's some like demonizing of uh, TV going on here in media? There is, and I, I thought it was kind of half-assed, but just talking it through with you, I'm like, okay, sure, and all right. Yeah, spread like sickness. The tapes like the sickness. I get it. Yeah, kind of cool. I mean, would you draw? Do you think the intent here is to draw a line from like because she was sleeping in the barn and she watched so much TV that like made her evil or whatever and like made her create this tape that then people watched and like it was distributed and killed people like are we are we to say like tv's what's to blame here yeah i mean i wouldn't go that far that's where i think it gets a little just kind of spotty but yeah yeah okay i I think it's just there to to just give the audience that message about tv and say okay well the images she was thinking of these images normally she just creates static images from her brain but since she had the video and the TV in her space, that's where the images ended up. Mm, okay, yeah, makes sense. And uh, did you pick up on that theme? Do you remember picking up on that one in earlier watches of this film? Definitely not. I mean, at that age, I was not picking. I didn't even know what a theme was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't believe I missed this. It's a, they, they try to make it like a, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say it's like too subtle since like this is like the f- third or fourth time it's been kind of uh, mentioned. Right, but I think it's kind of easy to miss. Too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Noah and Rachel return to the cabin um, where Katie stayed, and when an enraged Noah knocks some marbles onto the floor of the cabin, they notice the floor dips in the middle. All the marbles are gathering in the middle of the floor. So, of course, they chop up the floor uh, to discover a well, just like the well in the video, beneath the floorboards. It's now been seven days since Rachel watched the video, so they're both very tense. Some water appears on the floor, and the TV turns on, so we're kind of thinking, okay, maybe Rachel's going to get it. Through some supernatural trickery, the TV falls off of its stand and knocks Rachel into the well. While she's down there, she, she lands safely in a pool of water. She notices fingernails stuck into the walls, some black hair in the water, and the lid above her closes. And when it closes, it forms that same ring of light we see on the tape, and we realize, okay... This little girl was neglected, and, and well, we find out what happened to her, but she ended up in a well. I've got, I've got a nitpicky comment and or question. 
Mm. So if there is an unbroken ring of light around the lid of the well, that means the lid would just fall in because it's smaller than the opening. Oh, right? yeah, I guess physically. Yeah, <laughs> It that's seems physically point. impossible. The iconic ring yeah. seems like a physical impossibility. Uh, what if, uh, okay, so if, if we're talking about like, uh, I guess this is like geometry or something. So say it does cover the whole top, but uh, the top of the well is slightly uneven. So assume like the, the, the top layer is flat, but the border around is uneven. So then, then you would get some light around the edges, right? Exactly. And that's kind of what I was reasoning out too. But for it to be like a completely unbroken ring of light, mm-hmm. I, I, don't think, I don't think it would work. I think there would be at least a, some parts that would be yeah. much dimmer than the rest. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe if you look really closely at that image of the ring, you'd find that. But it seems pretty bright. Yeah. To me. <laughs> Damn, good call. So, yeah, fuck this movie. <laughs> you just broke the logic of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why this movie doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the, the lid above her closes, um, and, and Samara's arm from the water below grabs Rachel and shows her a vision. In the vision, uh, we see Samara standing by a well, Her mother approaches from behind, weeping, and she says, All I ever wanted was you. She then attempts to suffocate her with a black plastic bag and shoves her down the well. Rachel's vision ends, and she comes to, holding the undecayed dead body of Samara in her arms. Of course, this gives way to a rapidly decomposing skeleton. The authorities arrive. Things are presumed resolved. We learn that they're going to give Samara a proper burial. Rachel survived we we assume it's because she saved samara found her body um she also deduces that samara survived down there for seven days hence the seven days of life someone has remaining after they watch the video we also get some dialogue from rachel that points to a bigger theme of the film she says roughly she wanted that child more than anything in the world how could she have done that she just wanted to be heard sometimes children yell or cry or draw pictures. pictures. She kind of trails off. Her son, by the way, has been drawing pictures frantically this whole thing. She kind of trails off and says she wants to go home, implying she go. She wants to go be with her own child now. Yeah. So this is kind of commentary on her as a parent. You know, like how could she, how could she kind of be like this? She you you wanted this kid, and he's drawing these pictures because he wants to be heard, and you're kind of just letting him raise himself. Right. And it's kind of just the theme of the movie, like kids are fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't, don't, don't throw them in a well, please. <laughs> don't abandon them in a well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I I, th- I didn't realize that uh, at all. Like that when I watched this earlier. So it's it kind of cool to see that theme paralleled, like in her own life. Uh, like what, what's going on with uh, Samara and her mom, and like how she's being treated by her parents is like a, a metaphor for, yeah, how, like her kind of recognizing how she's treating her own son, which I thought was kind of cool to, to see that them taking the effort to make that uh, parallel there. What, what did you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, ne- neat attempt. Neat attempt. <laughs> hey, Ring, neat yeah. attempt. Yeah. Noah and Rachel pick up uh, Aiden from his aunt's house. They hold hands on the way home, Noah and Rachel do in the front seat, and Noah smiles at this from the back. When Noah leaves Rachel's house, he tells her to call him sometime, call him tomorrow and the day after that. So 
We presume this is their happy reuniting. Perhaps they'll even be uh, a happy family of three for the first time. When Rachel explains to Aiden the next day, like, what they did, uh, Aiden's like, whoa, no, not okay. He's been having visions of Samara, and and he's like, no, like, you weren't supposed to help her. That's not supposed. what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And here, I don't know if he's seeing Samara because he's got this supernatural connection or a sensitivity or if he's just seen her because you start to see her after a while of watching the tape. Yeah, that uh, that's a hard one because if that's true, <laughs> then I think the girl at the beginning uh, should have been like way more freaked out than hanging out at like a sleepover, uh, just kicking it and having a good time. Well, yeah, the tone of that beginning is just so confused either way. It's like, yeah. is she really just like <laughs> willy-nilly having a good time or is she yeah. like afraid for her life? Exactly, yeah. Hard to read into that. It's hard. Yep. Uh, And, oh, well, I guess, like, uh, Rachel has had uh, premonitions of her, right? Um, Exactly. Like, Rachel sees her a few days in, so it would make sense that Aiden has to. But Noah, I don't think, has, but, yeah. Yeah, right? Or at least he hasn't mentioned he. Yeah. You know, he calls and says he believes her, so maybe something, something happened in private. Yeah, he's very unbelievable. We can't. Really trust what exactly him to tell us the truth here, yeah. Uh, Rachel rushes to Noah's apartment once she, once she hears from Aiden that she shouldn't have done that. I guess he's some authority, but uh, she she's like wanting to let him know the situation may not be over. But she finds Noah dead with his face distorted in that trademark gnarled expression of shock that we saw earlier on uh, Katie's face. The scene where Noah dies is often taunted as one of the scariest scenes, perhaps of all time. It's an iconic moment where Samara emerges from the well in the video. She approaches the screen and then crawls out of the television towards Noah. And we get a look of her mean mug that is the last thing that Noah sees. All these years later, what did you think of this scare? I still think it's like one of the best kills. Like, uh, and it, I think part of it has to do with how slow this movie has been to build up to this. Uh, we've gotten like such little, like it's just been like generally creepy and like very little, uh, scare elements. So like suddenly to get her popping out of the TV, which is like the last thing you expect to see. And then like the jerky movement. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was very effective for its time and I think it still like works and is, is done really well. Um, the only thing holding it back is that this film is PG-13. So you don't see like how she actually kills people, which I think would have been, uh, fun, but I, I liked it, man. What, what did you think? I think the only thing holding it back is that we see her face. Like, it's mm. just like a a grumpy look. <laughs> it's not, like, yeah. super scary. I think it would have been better to just... There's nothing Keep... creepier than the long hair hanging over the face to me. That's true. That's true. That is very unnecessary to show the face. But uh, I agree. I, I, it's creepy. It's creepy how she approaches, just like she's really slow and, like, awkwardly walking as she approaches the camera. The way she crawls out, like, it still looks good. I mean, they're trying to make her kind of look like she's still on TV a little yeah. bit. So she's got this weird light to her, which makes white. it look CGI. And I mean, there is some CG there, too, but it's a person. Like, it is an actor crawling out of a TV, like, yeah. you know, a box. But right. it, it's, there's real motion. There's a real human here. It's not just a totally computer-generated image. Right. Uh, I think it still looks good, actually. I agree. I agree. I heard they, the way they shot it is uh, they had the actress walk backwards, uh, like, to the TV, and then they reversed it. So that's why you get that kind of, like, weird uh, motion with her. 
so yeah, I, I, I think that still holds up and like looks pretty creepy. Uh, do you think like part of me wonders like uh, is is like so much of why this is good? Like, what if this was in the opening and the movie started with this? Uh, like, is is part of the reason this is so good is because we've had like so little to hold on to this whole movie. Like, it's been so slow. That's a really good question because I'm going to just say in my review that that is one of my criticisms is that there's really not many scares in this movie at all. Right. Yeah, maybe that makes this scare better. But I don't know if it's worth it to wait this long when you really could have <laughs> pepped, pepped the movie up. Yeah, I throughout. agree. I agree. Um, I agree. Like so much of this movie is just like a, a hunt for like clues and like chasing uh people down and like uh, going to different places in the rain and on in in, in green color uh, so, yes yeah but so finally having this is, is like so great and, it, and it's good but yeah i feel like it comes so late in the game it does it does uh we're wrapping up here and then we're going to talk more about this kind of stuff and and specifically what you said about just searching for clues so rachel's wondering why did noah die while she survived what did she do differently and she realizes she made a copy and, you know, she kind of has a flashback of her saying she just wanted to be heard. So she's like, oh, okay. So Mara just wants to be heard. That means she wants people to copy the tape. So the movie ends with Rachel guiding her son Aiden's hand as he makes a copy of the tape. And he asks Rachel, what about the person we show it to? What happens to them? And then the film pretty much ends after that, leaving mm-hmm. that as kind of an open question. Yeah, man, this is a... Uh, as far as subgenres go, I would call this a supernatural thriller. It, it's structured like a thriller. She is not the police, but it's almost like she's going through a police investigation almost. Right. She's uncovering clues, going from destination A to destination B to destination C. Yep. Doing interviews. Doing interviews, doing her researching, uncovering facts. And there's a ticking clock, you know, which is a common thread in thriller movies. She's got seven days. And they remind us of that when we get to new scenes, you know, day six. Day four, day five, day six. It's on the screen in text. So it very much feels like a thriller. And it's interesting because up to a certain point, like... It, it all comes together pretty quick. Like, after she goes to the funeral, and then the plot really drives forward hard. And and it keeps you in the movie. You know, she's finding these clues. She, you're paying attention because you're getting new bits of information. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if your experience was like this. For the first, you know, 30 minutes, I was kind of like, oh, cool. This movie, like, really, you know, rips and just keeps going. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, I just looked up and was just like, I haven't been scared <laughs> in a long time like yeah we're still going with this it yeah. just the investigation got right underway and we started moving quick but then it was like moving quick for a really long time exactly yeah even uh the first time you see the tape i don't think it's until like 35 40 minutes in so until then it's just like a long time at the funeral and then like her going to like all these different places tracking down like notes and stuff and, and calling people down uh, and out. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree, man. It takes a long time to get to even, like, some of the creepy elements that start coming after she watches the tape. It does. Like, it's funny because I like the pace of the story and its revelations. If this wasn't a horror movie, I, I'd say the pacing is good. Yeah, if it was, like, National Treasure or something. Or right, the yeah. Vinci Code. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I can't help but feeling like the movie is entirely a second act. Like... Mm. It's, 
like that looms the largest. It's like the whole movie is just like her investigating. Yeah. And that's not the bread and butter of a horror movie and it's right. It, it's cool to have something else going on to keep us engaged, but like give us some give us some scares because it really impacts the rewatch value. It does. Yeah, exactly. Uh it does. Yeah. I, I think the first time you watch this it, it is a lot more interesting cuz you have like no idea who this girl is on the tape or like what there's like so much depth to that story about uh Samara and like her mom and like uh her dad and like what happened on the island um so yeah that's really cool to find out for the first time but yeah going back and watching it you just I don't know I felt myself just kind of waiting for that scene where she finally pops out of the tv is that is that how you felt yeah yeah it was and it we kind of opened this conversation talking about this movie as if you know, we talk about a lot of old movies and we have listeners be like, oh my gosh, like hearing you guys talk about this movie is frustrating to me because you had to be in that generation to see it. I feel like this is that type of movie for us. Mm-hmm. And I could see people coming back to it and being like, oh, this is slow. But just like with some of those movies of yours, it's like, oh, a slow burn can be good. And like right. you said, that final scare is maybe even better because we waited for it. So I feel a little cheap saying, hey, give me some scares throughout. Yeah, but I think not only were there not scares throughout, but there was very little character development and relationship development happening in that second act either. It was just all right. uncovering clues. Like, yes, we learned that Aiden is the father, the son of these two, but there's very little like connecting or um, emotion or right. pathos. Like, there's just not much to the second act except new plot points, new new yeah. reveals. Yep. Yeah, I, I think the second act is more focused on bringing out the characters of the people that we see on the tape, like the father, mother, and uh, uh, Samara dynamic, which, uh, yeah, it's hard to buy into so much if you're not, like, seeing them. Like, you see very, like, obviously the mother, like, killed herself, so she's not there. The Brian Cox, like, I think, I think when he's there as a dad, that's, like, a cool character to bring in, and his acting's pretty good, but, yeah, he's barely, like, in the movie. And so, like, the second half is so focused on, like, those three and, like, what happened with uh, Samara that, like, yeah, the three characters we kicked off the movie with uh, are, yeah, nothing's really happening with them. Exactly, yeah. Brian Cox is great in this, by the way. I think he he works great as like the ominous dad. He does, yeah. And yeah, and he uh, man, he's like so young in this too. It's wild to see. Yeah, but yeah, we don't get any development. And if they are a little bit of a mirror of Samara's family, you know, they're kind of neglecting the kid because it's more than they can handle, and one of them takes themselves out of the picture. Right. They we don't get enough of them to really drive home that this is happening again with. Aiden, to, and on a much smaller scale, you know, he, right. he's not at the bottom of a well, but <laughs> he's we on just the don't... floor of the family room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a weird yeah. place to see, face yeah. down on the hard floor. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we just don't get enough of them for the the parallel story to really hit home. It's kind of cool, like, oh, that's what's going on, you know, she's neglecting her kid, that's what this movie's kind of about, but boy, that would sure hit harder if the kid was in the movie at all, and... I get maybe he's not because she's neglecting him, but he could have had his side plot. Noah's side plot was another investigation, which I didn't even really get into, but he goes to a mental hospital and tries to uncover oh, some yeah. stuff. That was weird. Just it's like just, split them up for no reason. They did. It's just like give us some uh, give us some characters here. Give us some depth. Her arc is, I mean, in the end, she realizes she needs to be a better mom to her kid. Mm-hmm. That's her story arc, but really... 
her journey is just discovering the mystery. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really weird. But I, I mean, like the fact that you notice that Aiden is missing throughout the film, um, I think that's a, a really cool way for them to show us how similar she might be to Samara's parents and, and that like she's neglecting her child and like she's saying like oh shit this 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 is like something that I should have been doing the whole time or like it like the way it, like dawns on her is like suddenly it's like she's been so consumed in this mystery uh that like I don't know it, it, to me it's like they didn't spell it out uh but it's kind of a cool come to realization moment for her when uh she's there which I, I feel pretty bought into um you didn't get that like as a character development like maybe we didn't see it like happening live but we are there when like it hits her finally yeah yeah <clears throat> i hear what you're saying i think maybe you're giving a i think that's a really generous way to look at it like oh yeah the kid's not in it at all because yeah <laughs> the realization is she neglected the kid and we did too exactly. <laughs> as filmmakers yeah uh yeah but I, as the viewer though like uh, like you, you you caught yourself like wondering where the kid was right Yes, for sure. So I, I don't know. Do you think that was like the intent of the filmmakers? Like, hey, let's not have Aiden be in like 90% of this film and like uh, purposely his absence like plays a role in uh, drawing character. Like, yeah, the audience understand like this mother hasn't been uh, attentive to her child. Yeah. I mean, I, I just feel like that's generous. But <laughs> it is. <laughs> and maybe the answer isn't putting Aiden in the film more. Maybe it's having more meaningful discussions between yeah Rachel and Noah I mean this dude just walked away from fatherhood she seems okay with it we never get a conversation between the two of them about it we have a little bit of a oh I'm just gonna do this and you're gonna do that like we always do and let's not get into it yeah as she's leaving his apartment one day right but they never have a discussion about their relationship other than those passing comments and it's just yeah it feels like this all this complexity is there lurking under the surface, but no one ever discusses it. Exactly. And it's not in like this yeah. nuanced way where everyone's revealing it in their facial expressions and stuff we see yeah. on screen is is letting us know what their inner lives are, are. You know, it's not like we're seeing visuals that mirror their inner lives. If we right. are, I missed it. No, I missed it too. Instead, <laughs> we're getting the clunky dialogue of, do you wish I was around more? No. <laughs> do you? Like, it feels forced in when it's there. Yeah, I just it just feels like a lot was left on the table here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I feel like there's uh, enough to let you know that, as you mentioned, there's something under the surface, and then every now and then they try to hit on it or like bring it back, and it feels a little bit unnatural and uh, kind of like forced. Like, uh, yeah, not like yeah, yeah. It is. They could have they could have got done a lot better of a job with that for sure. I'm starting to notice, and maybe I'm just seeing my life reflected back to me how many movies horror movies specifically are just about dealing with difficult children oh yeah <laughs> and like how parenting is hard yeah i think that's what gave birth to horror movies like the shining the babadook yeah like yeah i thought this kid reminded me a lot of uh like i don't know he had like elements of like damien in him there was like i, I don't know kind of reminded me a little bit of the sixth sense as well uh i'm mean, like i don't know would you say he was like a very original character or no, like, no. I feel like he was such a cliche of a horror movie kid. And he even yeah. just has that look of like, this is what a horror movie kid is supposed to look like. Yeah. It, it's frustrating. Yeah. Um, I know. Kind of cliche for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do like that. I mean, I like that theme. And I kind of like that, you know, Samara's mom wanted a child so badly they adopted her. 
And then they just realized this was the worst decision they ever made. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I uh, abandoning a child. No, like adopting her was the worst decision they ever made. Was it clear that they had adopted her? Because it sounds like they went off the island. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, they. That was at least the locals' perception that they adopted her from somewhere, but they didn't know where. Oh, okay. Because she was not birthed by her mother. Got it. Okay. So yeah, it could be kind of a Damien type situation here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. They could have adopted child. But I I think that uh, I. I think that more and more parents are open about being like, in our generation, like, what did I get into here? Like, sure. I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> and I like movies that toy with that. I'm not advocating to murder your children. Please don't. But uh, I like movies that, I like that that theme's being explored in, in horror movies. Yeah, I do, yeah. Over, I, over decades of yeah. horror movies. That's like, seems like a universal theme and like, uh, yeah, so like Babadook and stuff, like some some classics have, have hit on that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, going back to uh, the, these characters and like their relationships, that was my other interpretation of the ring. Is this idea of the ring like symbolizes marriage and like a family and unity? And your core characters here is like I don't know what you would call them. Like it's not like a, uh, I mean they're not a nuclear family, right? Which is like what a lot of J horror like hits on. I think is like a lot of supernatural stuff coming out of the destruction of a nuclear family. Um, do you think there is an interpretation here? Because the arc is kind of that at the end, those two, Noah and Rachel, are coming back together, much to uh, Aiden's kind of, you know, happiness or whatever. Um, but like, uh, yeah, that that doesn't work out. But is is the ring supposed to be a symbol of parents coming together and this idea of a nuclear family? Yeah, for sure. Like three people holding hands in a circle of unity. Yeah, and maybe that's why the ring is not unbroken. That is, <laughs> the aspiration is a, a ring that is unbroken. Exactly, yeah, that's all she ever wanted, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that that is an astute observation. I think it definitely is about family and the desire to have a happy family from everyone's perspective. Samara seemed to be sorry about how their family dynamic was from her interviews at the mental health institution that she was at. The dad was plagued by the visions. The mom had, you know, she was like, all I ever wanted was this and now I can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's really an actually pretty interesting theme. I, I think it's interesting to discuss. I think it's interesting how it's pointed to throughout the movie, but I just don't think, it's almost more interesting after the movie than it is during the movie, if yeah. that makes sense. It, is it makes for more interesting well. discussion than it does for viewing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it was executed poorly, uh, and, and they just try to kind of shoehorn that theme there. I bet, uh, I don't know, like I know we watched The Ringu years ago, uh, and there's the book as well. I bet that, that stuff's like portrayed a little bit stronger in, in those uh, th- those pieces versus this movie. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested to watch Ringu again. Right, yeah, same. There's an argument you can find online. I've seen it come up a few times recently that it is uh, bootlegging is important for film preservation, especially in the streaming area or streaming era, and uh, you know when various rights issues can cause a film to just disappear from streaming services or online rental services without any copies in physical print. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if this movie is an argument not necessarily for just bootlegging in general but for like 
a preservation of physical media. Like, oh, sure. all Samara wants is to be heard. She wants you to make a copy. Like, is there some commentary on filmmaking and just like, mm-hmm. I want this to exist in the world. I want it to be a physical thing that gets copied and yeah. remains forever. Dude, yeah, totally. Like, I, I don't want it to be lost. Right, right. And it's kind of like the way she lives on, too. Uh, so, yeah, she, I, I think she uh, has, like, a a, pers- a vested interest in, like, that film living on, being right. copied, duplicated, the word getting out. Like, that's kind of like preserving her memory and her ability to kill people uh, by jumping out of the TV. So, yeah, it does kind of point to the value of, like, film to capture things. Uh, do, do you think it only pertains to, like, physical media or... Uh, like, yeah, what does that mean in our current world where, like, everything's digital and they're just, like, there's no such things like a copy anymore because it's all just streamed? Yeah, right, and that's an interesting... Now I'm thinking more into that, like, oh, I see things and then they, like, just appear. Like, they then they are. Like, yeah, about filmmaking, you know, or, or any kind of art. Like, I see something, then I make it mm. appear. I make it... I generate it in physical form. That's kind of what you're doing when you're making art or making a movie or something. Right, and yeah. she wants it to be proliferated. Sure. Yeah, man, I think we're in a dangerous time. Uh, I, I can't say I'm too wise or boned up on it, but in the past few years of just reading more about horror movies, you hear about lost films from the 20s and 30s, and it strikes you how... you. I feel like even with like things like climate change and aging, you just start to realize how a society could just crumble if a few core things fail. And really, yeah. movies are so new. They're 100 years old. We just depend on the physical copies existing and being copied and preserved and transferred to new mediums for them mm-hmm. to survive. And if, if nobody's doing that or if there's some sort of legal issue mm-hmm. that gets things held up, the movies could just go away. I I think that was, I think that's going to start to happen a lot. Like oh yeah, there are these streaming services that aren't making, they aren't putting some of their movies out on physical media, right. especially ones even some of the ones that perform really well. Like, um, someone was complaining recently that like Prey, I don't think is out on physical media, or maybe oh. it's. Uh, don't quote me on that, but there were a couple big Netflix things that aren't aren't out on physical media. So sure. I'm sure some of their lesser-known stuff definitely isn't on physical media, and it's very possible that Netflix will just disappear one day. Sure. Uh, probably <laughs> inevitable. And their library very well might go away. It may be, you know, the rights may be sold, and physical things, copies may be made and sold, but yeah. it's very possible that hundreds of movies will just disappear. Even right. movies that were big, left a big cultural impact. Yeah, you know, like the bird boxes of the world. Who knows? I don't know if that has a physical release. That was a cultural movement for a while, uh, but that could go away. Right? Yeah. If Netflix, yeah, I know. So much is dependent on uh, Netflix and like, yeah, the continuity plan they have. Yeah, but I'm uh, sure there's bootlegs out there. So sure, you know, that, maybe that kind of supports the theme I'm reading into here. That yeah. bootlegging and and making copies, whether authorized or not, is our our way to carry the voices on. Yeah, preserve our culture, document what's happened, yeah. share, share trauma, like how uh, Samara did here. Right, and others. I mean, you could say some of this culture is more important than the rights to the money behind it, you know? So right. things become a piece of, of human culture after a while. Exactly, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I think that that's a pretty universal theme. So maybe she was just uh, an aspiring filmmaker this whole time that just wanted her work to live on. Exactly, yeah. That makes yeah. sense.
Can't blame this her. This is why we have the National Film Registry to, to preserve things that they deem culturally important so that they don't go away forever. Yeah. That's a hard one, though. I mean, like, I can't imagine, like, how you even determine what's culturally relevant versus, like, who are they to say these are the movies we're going to keep and make sure stick around? And eh, it just seems uh, problematic. I don't think they're just like, hey, I like this one, so let's preserve <laughs> yeah, it. I think they're like, exactly. this movie has been reviewed, discussed, put on thousands of lists. Like, yeah, it, you don't necessarily need to have anyone. I don't know. I yeah. think it's safe to be like, all right, what's a what's like a super popular? I think it's safe to say something like Brokeback Mountain is a you know worthy of preservation. That sure. was a huge movie, cultural landmark, and a, a big deal for for the people it represented on the screen. So sure, sure. There are movies yeah, like that where it's like, okay, n- no question, this is oh yeah for sure, this is important. Yeah, yeah, definitely some movies that easily pass that benchmark and. Have a good uh, horror movie club score. Yeah, or a a Return of the Living Dead, for example. Oh, <laughs> of course. Anyway, man, this is getting to be a, a long episode, so let's let's get to it. Uh, zero to five kids crawling out of wells. Oh, man. So, yeah, as we talked about at the beginning, this was really high up in my memory, one of the best films I've seen. But on rewatch, unfortunately, it dropped down quite a bit uh, as it felt like pretty nonsensical at times. So two and a half kids crawling out of the well for me you know i I think he had two decent jump scares uh the rest of the time this just creepy environment but uh it's so hindered by the slow pacing that you get throughout the film the oversaturation of the green color throughout the film the music which you know i love hans Zimmerman, but i I just thought it was like so sappy in this movie um the interesting themes but i I thought you know as we talked about not really well executed and kind of just like hinted on here and there and uh yeah character development kind of missing i mean there's something underneath there that they could have tapped into but i don't think they did so yeah on rewatch it didn't feel like uh this film held up as as great as i remember it to have held up uh but yeah what about you yeah, I mean, that's that's lower than I thought you'd go, but uh, I give it a 3.5 uh, kids crawling out of wells. I think while it contains some of the most iconic horror imagery of the aughts, the film's so focused on its mystery that it forgets to mine its scary premise throughout the second act, and the prioritization of plot reveals over character development keeps it from having the rewatch value of other classics. Uh yeah, I well like it. It, it. That the second act and the, the thriller aspect, it is interesting, and, and the plot keeps moving forward. And yeah, those the tape and the kill at the end, iconic. They deserve to be on lists of mm-hmm. scariest movie moments or whatever. Yeah, but it's just not enough to make this a great hour and forty minutes or whatever it is. Right, like, it's not enough to justify. I mean, it does. I like the movie, but it's just a bummer. When I, I went to this was a movie where I was like, okay, like I'm sitting down. This is like maybe five material, five out of five. Like this, this could be one of those. <laughs> like that's kind of yeah. how I felt with Blair Witch, you know. And there's movies like that where we've sat down and I've been like, yes, yes, this this hits forty year old Brian the same way it hits it hit eighteen year old Brian. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm only thirty nine. Everybody, but. <laughs> It didn't. No, I can't say that it hit the same, man. It's yeah. It's got some big, big flaws. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, for the time it came out, I think it was like brilliant. Obviously, had such a huge legacy, and I'm really glad uh, for the impact it had on our lives. 
Uh, but yeah, I, I just feel like compared to where horror movies are today, there's a, a lot of gaps here. Yeah, agree. Holes. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, that's all I got. All right, cool. That has been our discussion on The Ring, everybody. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, feel free to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We really appreciate that, and it helps other people find the show. If you want to connect with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com. Click on that social links drop-down. You've got links to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's where we let people know what we're talking about next week for next week's show. And we all interact with you, too, if you post some comments. We've also got a link for our Discord server that is just uh, basically a chat room of horror fans, of listeners, that just always conversation going on there. A great community of horror fans if you want to get on there, get to know some people and talk horror. You can always email us to podcast at horrormovieclub.com. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. Uh, go to etsy.com and Google Amy Mae Popart. You'll find some great horror art. We've got Patreon, so if you click on the big orange Patreon button on HorrorMovieClub.com, you can subscribe for a dollar a month, gain access to some bonus episodes we've been stockpiling out there, as well as some videos. And until next time, if you plan to uh, kill your kid and hide them in a well, you're going to make sure that lid has a circumference greater than the circumference of the hole, or else there's going to be some trouble down the road. There may be some hauntings, perhaps a videotape, etc. <laughs> just do the math. <laughs> it's just math. It is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, is, what is that? Two, two pie hits a diamond or something? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, no. Two pie, two pie. You can't just multiply pie by two. You gotta have <laughs> a relation to those shapes. So I think, I think pie R squared is two.